Know the Chess podcast. My name is Ian Nathanson. I'm the section editor for evidence-based medicine for chest. I recently moderated a discussion on the latest update of the chest antithrombotic guidelines. Joining me were Dr. Clyde Kieran, who's a professor of medicine at McMaster University. Dr. Kieran is the corresponding author of the VTE chest guideline that we discussed. We were also joined by Dr. Lisa Moores, who is the associate dean for student affairs of the Uniformed Services University of Health Sciences. Lisa is the chair of the Chest Antithrombotic Guidelines. Together we discussed the article Antithrombotic Therapy for VTE Disease, and we also discussed the accompanying editorial by Dr. John Hefner, which was entitled Update to the Antithrombotic Guidelines, Medical Professionalism and the Funnel of Knowledge. Uh, together we provided some insight into the new living guidelines model that Chest now uses, and Dr. Kieran also provided some of the new recommendations that were placed in the new guideline. So, Lisa, uh, tell us why uh, there was uh, an update to AT10 from what was an enormous uh, uh, effort uh, with over 600 recommendations for AT9. Uh, why develop a new update? Well, it's a good question, Ian, and I think a lot of it comes down to the fact that when you look at venous thromboembolism and, and antithrombotic therapy, there is still quite a bit going on in this field, both in terms of risk stratification, prognosis, and, and treatment, um, whether that's, you know, in the acute setting or in the extended phase. And... We, as a, as a group, um, I, I think the college has established itself as, as one of the, if not the leading authority in the area of antithrombotics. And um, I know for me, and I, I think a lot of the panel, there was some growing angst that there, there were some studies out there that we felt would probably impact recommendations that were in AT9 and, and would potentially change the way the practitioners are going to manage patients. So we, we wanted to do that, but we wanted to fit it into what the college is trying to do in terms of the movement towards a more living or fluid or, or flexible guideline. Um, you know, rather than have to wait four years between the publications of a, of a 900-page document, which by the time it hits the reader in many instances, you know, may be out of date. Uh, you know, or at least there are new studies that were not able to be incorporated. And what we're trying to do is to get better at monitoring the literature real time and moving quickly when we know that there are studies that would impact um, a particular PICO question and the resulting recommendation. And so move more towards a, what are the PICO questions that we have previously identified, um, what are some of the studies that might impact those, and when a quick scan says, yes, there's, there's more information, to, to do them on an individual level rather than on the whole guideline. Um, we don't really have the infrastructure yet to do that as quickly as we would like, but as, a, as an expert panel, we all agreed that the area of treatment um, was one of the areas that had the most uh, a new studies since 18.9, and therefore we chose to focus just on that chapter, if you will, from anti-thrombotics uh, ninth version. And with the group of the panel, we looked through that original chapter, particularly with Clive's help, uh, having been the lead author on that chapter, and we went through 
PICO question by PICO question, recommendation by recommendation, and said which ones of these do we as a group feel um, would be amenable to an update. Uh, we also pulled the group on new areas that maybe had not been addressed in 18.9 but would fall under the umbrella of acute management. And we started with that and kind of went from there based on the literature search that ensued. Great. Yeah, great. Thank you. That's a, a nice uh, summary. <clears throat> Clive, I wonder if you might uh, pick up on that and, and tell the listeners uh, about some of the new uh, messages that you're, and new recommendations that uh, the group is presenting. Well, I'd be pleased to. As Lisa mentioned, we had a very systematic approach to deciding which areas in the previous guidelines deserved a focus for update, and if there were questions that we had not addressed in the last version of these guidelines that we have been asked over the years to provide some guidance on. So we added some new questions in relationship to that. Of course, there has been an explosion in the development of new oral anticoagulants, sometimes referred to as non-vitamin K oral anticoagulants or direct oral inhibitors. So we wanted to comment on if the position of these agents had evolved since our last set of guidelines. And we felt that now there were sufficient number of studies and experience using these agents, which we have referred to as NOACs, in both the acute and the long-term treatment of venous thrombosis. So four years ago, we were a little reluctant to endorse the use of these agents in preference or as a clear alternative to vitamin K antagonists or warfarin. Now we felt that the information available supported their use, and in particular because they have been shown to be associated with a lower risk of bleeding, we felt that we would suggest the use of these agents over warfarin. And when we say we suggested, therefore we are acknowledging that the decision as to whether you were to pick one of these new agents or warfarin can be influenced by differences among patients and by patients' preferences, and that it may indeed reasonably be influenced by other factors such as availability of the agents or uh, cost. But either way, we now make a recommendation in favor of these agents, a weak recommendation in preference to warfarin therapy in patients who have had who have venous thrombosis and do not have an underlying cancer. If I might expand further on that, we also put these new agents on a level playing field or on the same footing as warfarin in patients who have cancer-associated thrombosis. Though, as we did in the last version of these guidelines, we continue to make a weak recommendation or a suggestion that extended low molecular weight heparin is preferable to warfarin or other oral anticoagulants in patients who have cancer-associated thrombosis. And so how will this affect uh, the average practicing physician? Uh, As you know, uh, many places uh, throughout the world uh, have a system of care where there's outpatient physicians and inpatient physicians Uh, And, of course, then there are the consultants or the specialists who might see the patient. Uh, But for a patient who arrives in an emergency room complaining of 
of uh, symptoms that might lead the physicians to think that there is uh, some sort of thrombobolic event that is uh, going on. Uh, will any of these new recommendations affect the approach to any of those patients? Well, I think that there will still be a lot of common ground between the approach to those patients that we had before the use of these agents and now that they are available. And before we start talking about treatment, we have to re-emphasize that as a first step, you need to have accurate diagnosis. And we would like to discourage people from starting patients on anticoagulant therapy with a lower threshold just because it is easier to treat people with an oral agent either after initial low molecular weight heparin therapy or with an oral agent from the time of initial diagnosis. So the availability of these new agents is not a substitute for accurate diagnosis. I think we also have to be careful that when we start these new agents that there is a very clear chain of communication between the various physicians who are involved with the care of the patients, whether it is from the emergency room to home or from the hospitalist to the outpatients to home. There needs to be a very explicit handover of responsibility from one group to the next. So that has not changed since before. But I think once a decision has been made to start a patient on anticoagulants, these certainly will facilitate treating patients at home, and it will make it easier for patients when they are on anticoagulants at home because they will not need to have laboratory monitoring. And um, the, in, at least in the United States, there is... Uh, really a deluge of TV advertising for various agents, uh, and I wonder if this affects how physicians think, not only for their own practice, but, but what they think uh, could be the potential for any of the panelists of AT10 uh, who may be uh, involved in research uh, or any other uh, kinds of activities uh, related to industry. Uh, so, Lisa and Klein, how did you uh, look at the potential for conflict of interest uh, in the panelists who are selected for AT10? And in other words, how do you how do you sort of balance out those people who are truly bona fide content experts and naturally industry would like to use their their skill set uh, and ensuring that they don't introduce and an unexpected or at least an unwanted uh, bias into the discussion? That's a good question. So before we started, all potential panel members were reviewed by the American College of Chest Physicians to ensure that they had what we would consider manageable, either no conflicts of interest or manageable conflicts of interest then all of those panel, member, panel members that passed that evaluation and were endorsed to be members of the panel declared any intellectual, that is, studies that they had been involved with previously, or financial conflicts that might relate to each of the specific questions that we were addressing. I think also it was quite a large panel the members know each other on the panel. It was the responsibility of the panel members during this 
during discussions to uh, come forward and remind people that they had conflicts of interest. They were not uh, prevented from contributing to the discussion. But if the discussion got lively and if it came down to a vote, if they had a conflict of interest, then they stepped away from the discussion and they were not one of the voting members. It was never necessary, in fact, for one panel member to point out to another panel member, either at the level of the chair or individual panel members, that somebody was pushing hard on a topic for which they had a conflict of interest. So it was more to keep the conflicts of interest open, transparent, and uh, clear, rather than to preclude people who had had worked on individual studies from contributing to the discussion. And so, Lisa, would you agree then that the uh, the readers of 1810 and, and any of the folks who are listening to this uh, podcast can feel much more comfortable that at least conflict of interest were uh, at least managed in a way that did not lead to uh, a biased um, a document. Are you comfortable with that as the editor? I, I'm very comfortable with that. Um, as Clive said, we had a, a rather large panel. Um, we did know each other, at least virtually. Uh, we had read each other's work. Um, we had been on multiple calls together. But I think it was also a diverse group. Um, we had people that I believe anyone that takes care of patients with thrombosis would recognize them as international experts. And that's key if you want to, in my opinion as a practitioner, have trust in those recommendations. But we also had a wide range of frontline pulmonary physicians and some more junior faculty that, um, you know, believe it or not, had no conflicts, no financial or intellectual conflicts, at least for the majority of the questions that we chose to examine. And as Clive said, we I felt that the conversations that we had were very open. Um, it was very clear who was making which arguments, and we all knew everyone's area of expertise, uh, and I didn't notice anyone, you know, as, as you might say, bullying the rest of the crowd when they felt strongly about something. In fact, if anything, I think they were more willing to back off and make sure that they weren't driving the conversation. The, the other thing that we did is we, you know, we discussed the conflict at the beginning of every call. We went back through it again, and we made sure that people were aware of it, and we updated it if something had changed. And, and there were occasions where people had signed on to newer studies, and that new information was disclosed with the group. So I think at every point, we felt very comfortable with who was in the group, who was doing the talking, and making sure that when the final vote came for each recommendation, that anyone with significant conflict did not vote on that recommendation. And while we're on the discussion about voting and recommendations, uh, how good was, maybe you could give the listeners a sense of, of how good the new evidence was, and, and perhaps give us a sense of, of how you actually grade the evidence. Uh, even if you want to bring out specific examples, that'd be great. I can open that. I, we use the grade approach to making recommendations. So the recommendations we make are either strong recommendations, which are worded as we recommend, or they are weak recommendations, in which case they are worded as we suggest. A strong recommendation is made 
if there is sufficient evidence out there and that that evidence is persuasive that we felt just about anybody being familiar with this evidence would make the a choice in the direction that we made it and with the strength that we made the recommendation. In other words, that we could be very confident about the wisdom of making that treatment decision. For weaker recommendations, when we made a suggestion, I think I mentioned before, these it usually meant that the risks and benefits were finely balanced or perhaps that the quality of the evidence that was available was not as strong, and therefore it would not be black and white that most people or necessarily everybody would want to choose in the same direction. And then having decided what the strength of the recommendation was, which was partly based on the quality of the evidence that is available, we rate the evidence as A, if it in general is based on data from randomized trials that have a low potential for bias, where the trials generally are large or they are a number, there are a number of trials, often large as well, that all have consistent findings. In fact, of the recommendations that we made, because I think the bar is set very high to decide that the quality of the evidence is A, we didn't rate the quality of the evidence for any of our recommendations as being of the highest uh, order. And then for still good quality evidence, but that did not meet that uh, threshold, the evidence would be rated as moderate. And then, of course, when the evidence was weaker, perhaps not from randomized trials, or if from randomized trials, small randomized trials, that had that when you looked at different randomized trials that there was heterogeneity or inconsistency in their findings or that were prone to bias perhaps because there wasn't blinding or there were other limitations in how the trials were performed, the evidence would be rated as low. And, I, you know, I would add to that, you know, as Clive went through that, which is a wonderful description of the grade methodology, which I think internationally is, is respected as the best approach in terms of evaluating the evidence. Uh, one of the things that we noticed is that although there weren't many that met that high-quality uh, A grading, there was a movement towards better quality and better precision in the evidence for several of the recommendations between AT9 and AT10. So, you know, I think that was somewhat encouraging in terms of the panel feeling more confident in the either recommendations or suggestions that we were making. Well, we've only got a couple of minutes uh, remaining, and I wonder if uh, you might give us a sense of when we can look forward to AT11 or how often uh, these guidelines or even other uh, recommendations that were found in AT9 that you chose not to review uh, for AT10, how often we might look forward to uh, uh, additional updates? Yeah, I think that that's a great question, and that's something that's continuing um, to go on in the background. So we, as, as the college sort of explored what type of platform, including what type of potentially uh, technology we might use to help us monitor the literature uh, more in real time so that we could make very quick decisions in terms of 
um, new evidence in the area of antithrombotic therapy. We, we said, all right, we'll, we'll start with this one because we know there's a lot of areas in treatment, but in the background, I think many of the members of the panel recognized that there were other areas that were just, uh, you know, almost as close in terms of needing that update, uh, and we are already in the works to, to look at the uh, prevention of stroke in patients with, uh, with atrial fibrillation, predominantly the non-valvular, but, but looking at that whole group. And uh, we are also in the, in the works to look at the perioperative management of patients on anticoagulants. Um, we, as an executive group, did also discuss looking at some of the recommendations in terms of prevention of venous thromboembolism. And, and I think rather than be tied to the structure that you saw in 18.9 with chapters in non-surgical patients and then chapters in different types of surgical populations, we may lean more towards combining those back again and doing an, an update in, in multiple different patient populations in the area of prevention. Uh, so I think it's something that you will see that as soon as there's a groundswell of evidence, we're going to update that area. And I don't know that I would, I don't know how we're going to call this, whether it's going to continue to be AT10 or 11 or whether it's going to be, you know, updates on the chest guidelines for acute treatment and update on the chest guidelines for prevention of stroke in patients with atrial fibrillation. That's, that's something that uh, we're still uh, working out a little bit with the Guidelines Oversight Committee, but I think that uh, our readers, our chest members, and our, our practicing physicians can look forward to continuing updates um, as we move along. Uh, that, that's great news because uh, it is, a, you mentioned earlier, Lisa, how uh, a guideline could come out and it would take four years from the time uh, the panel uh, first was formulated until the guidelines actually appeared in print. Some of the information would be outdated. And having served on guideline committees myself, uh, it is frustrating uh, to actually read something uh, that you know is a little bit out of date. Um, is there anything that we didn't touch on that uh, either of you would like to uh, bring out? I think maybe I would emphasize or just draw attention to a couple of other recommendations that we either changed or that were a new recommendation in relationship to change based on a large study that was published in the Lancet in the last year or two. We have changed our position on whether patients who have acute deep vein thrombosis routinely should receive below knee graduated compression stockings for the first two years with a view to preventing them from developing the post-thrombotic syndrome. So the SOC study looked at this and based predominantly on the findings of that study, we now make a suggestion that it is not necessary or indicated to routinely use compression stockings with a view to preventing the post-thrombotic syndrome, which is not to say that there's a role that, which is not to say that there isn't a role for stockings in patients who have swelling of their legs and benefit from stockings in terms of reducing their symptoms. We are not discouraging the use of stockings to prevent swelling and discomfort in the legs. We're just saying that to prevent post-thrombotic syndrome down the line, we, current evidence suggests that that is not effective and not justified. And then if I was to pick one of our new recommendations, we have been asked over the years to give some guidance as to whether patients who have 
isolated subsegmental pulmonary embolism should or should not receive anticoagulant therapy. So we have now provided some recommendations for that group of patients. First, we say that before you label somebody as having isolated subsegmental pulmonary embolism, and particularly if you are not going to be anticoagulating them, that it's important to look in the legs and make sure that patients do not have proximal deep vein thrombosis, because if they have proximal deep vein thrombosis, then they have an unequivocal indication for anticoagulant therapy. And those patients who you look in the legs, they don't have proximal deep vein thrombosis. We identify the patients who And it is a weak recommendation, and we acknowledge that it is based on low-quality evidence, but we still like to give some guidance. We suggest those patients that have a high risk of recurrence should receive anticoagulant therapy, and those who we think would have a low risk of recurrence should not. Instead, if you don't anticoagulate patients, though, you need to keep them under some clinical surveillance to ensure that they remain well. And the ones that we would suggest would have a low risk of recurrence are patients who have uncertain findings on their CT pulmonary angiogram. And I think we all recognize that sometimes you see clear abnormalities in the subsegmental pulmonary arteries, and other times you see less convincing abnormalities or you just see one abnormality. Other times our clinical suspicion is low for the patient having pulmonary embolism or The patient does not have risk factors for continuing embolism, such as an underlying malignancy, or we may have another result that would suggest to us that anticoagulant therapy or pulmonary is not necessary or that pulmonary embolism may not be present, for example, if you had a low D-dimer or certainly not a high D-dimer. So I think those that the revision of the previous recommendation and, and the new one maybe will give a flavor for some of the topics that we have tried to tackle in this update. Great, Lisa. Yeah, Thanks no, I, I, I would have picked those same areas, and, um, you know, that, that to me was one of the things that I found very satisfying was to kind of pull the group about questions that they were commonly uh, getting whether that was, you know, in, in the inpatient care or as they were traveling and teaching about the subject area. And even though the, the quality of the evidence is not high, I think it does help people to, to hear what, how the experts put that information together and what they would do and what are they basing those decisions upon. So, you know, it's, it's not cut and dry, but I think it does give the, the frontline clinician some information that they can use to to have a discussion with the patient and make those decisions. Well, thank you both very much. I think this has been a, a wonderful discussion uh, about the new living guidelines and the changes that we'll find in AT10. Uh, I would like to thank both Clive Kieran and Dr. Lisa Moores for spending uh, some time with us uh, to, to uh, update our listeners. Uh, and. Uh, If there are no other comments, then I'd like to thank you both very much for your time. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you.